Greetings and welcome. My name's James White. We have been doing an in-depth study of the inspiration, consistency, the testimony to the unity of the Christian scriptures, the Bible. In our last study, we began looking at the subject of Gnosticism. Gnosticism is an ancient Christian worldview, an ancient, ancient non-Christian worldview, anti-Christian worldview, a religious worldview that came out of the East, came into the area in which the New Testament was being written. And we have evidence that the apostles themselves warned about the beginnings of Gnosticism, warned that this religious system is fundamentally contradictory to the Christian faith. Why is it fundamentally contradictory? I think it's important for us to understand this because not only are there still religions in the world that have similarities to Gnosticism, but one of the primary sources that people are drawing from today to attack the Christian faith is the ancient Gnostic heresies, the ancient Gnostic religion. You see, Gnosticism is fundamentally contradictory to Christianity because the Christian faith teaches that there is one true and eternal creator God, that God is eternal, that God is not dependent upon anything around him, matter and the creation is not something that God came out of, but instead God is self-existent, and by his power he caused everything else to come into existence. Christianity is a monotheistic religion. We believe in only one true God who has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not three gods, but one God who created all things. Anything that exists, exists because the power of God brought it into existence and sustains it to this very day. In fact, it is the message of the Christian faith, and this is the radical element of the, of the Christian faith, that that creator God, to bring about his own glory and the salvation of his people, entered into his own creation. This we call the incarnation. He entered into his own creation. He has that kind of power. He has that kind of ability. And what that means is that I, this day, as I stand before you, every beat of my heart, every breath that I take comes to me from my creator, comes to me from Jesus Christ. The scriptures describe Jesus Christ as one who created all things, whether in heaven and earth, visible or invisible, principalities, powers, dominions, or authorities, all things are created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things literally hold together. He is the one who by his power holds all things together. That is the message of Colossians chapter 1, Paul's epistle to that church. And it's interesting that it is that very same epistle, that very same letter that warns us the most about this beginning of Gnosticism taking place during the time of the New Testament. Why is that relevant? Real simple. As Gnosticism came into the churches, they tried to find a place for Jesus, but they had to change the message of who Jesus was to make a place for him in their religion. Why? because of the fundamental beliefs of Gnosticism. Let me explain them to you. Gnosticism believes that salvation is obtained through the obtaining of secret gnosis or knowledge. Through, by going through these religious ceremonies, these cultic rituals, you would gain knowledge whereby you could be freed from the physical universe and thereby gain salvation. You see, the Gnostics believe that the 
the ultimate God, and they believe in, in many lesser beings, but the ultimate God is fully spiritual and therefore could have nothing to do with the physical creation because fundamental to Gnostic belief is something called dualism. Now, what does dualism mean? Dualism is the idea, in essence, that if something is physical, it is evil, and if something is spiritual, it is good. Therefore, the true God, being good, is all spiritual. How then did the physical creation, which is evil, come into existence? Well, that was a difficult question for the Gnostics to answer. To do so, they came up with this idea that you begin with the one true spiritual God and then descending down, emanating out from that one true spiritual God, you have lesser beings called eons. And each of these eons is still divine in power, but since each emanation is a little bit farther and a little bit farther from the true spiritual God, they're a little less pure. They came up with the idea, the theory, that there was a, a whole group of these eons, these emanations from the one true God. They called the whole group the pleroma, the Greek word for fullness. I'll mention in a moment why that's important to remember. Finally, you get far enough down from the one true God that you still have a divine being that has great power, but it's far enough removed now from the true spiritual God that they call this a demiurge. It was a, a divine being that has great power, but is no longer truly pure and therefore created physical matter. So you see, for the Gnostics, the creator God was an evil God. The creator God was a God not worthy of worship. You can see how on a fundamental level, Gnosticism was completely contradictory to the very first principles of the Christian faith and of Judaism as well, which asserts that the creator God is perfect and pure and he brought all things into existence and when he did, he said, it is good. The Gnostics, however, have a completely different view of the world. And so they had to find a place for Jesus. Well, how do you fit Jesus into the middle of a, of a theory where you have the one true spiritual God and then you have these eons that form the play Roma and then a demiurge? Where does Jesus fit in a system like that? They had to find a place for him because one of the things that's true of Gnosticism is it would always try to adapt itself to the religious beliefs that it encountered as it was coming out of the East and moving westward. And so it was eclectic in nature. It, it, try, it was willing to change itself. It wasn't saying we have the one final truth. It was saying we have a truth and we will adapt ourselves so as to fit with what we encounter as we move along. So what would they do with Jesus? They encounter this teaching about Jesus and the consistent teaching of the apostles was that he was the son of God, that he was the eternal word made flesh, that he was the great I am of John 8, 58 and John 18, 5 through 6, that he was the creator of all things. And so when they encounter this message of Jesus, they also hear that he was a good man, that he did good things. Well, that causes them a problem because if he was truly a man, then his physical nature would be evil. So they couldn't allow him to be truly a man. 
And so they did two things in regards to Jesus. The first thing they did is they turned him into one of these lesser emanations from God. He became one of the eons, worthy of a form of worship, but not of the highest worship. He was not that one true spiritual God. He was one of the emanations that came down from that one true God. So that was the first thing they did. They had to deny his true deity. They had to turn him into a, a separate kind of deity, a lower kind of deity. But then there was this problem about the physical body. The Bible was very clear. The apostles' preaching was very clear that the word became flesh. There was a point in time in which the word became flesh. John 1:14. The word had not eternally been flesh, but there was a point in time in which the word became flesh. And John doesn't leave us any wiggle room there. He doesn't leave us any room for compromise. He makes sure the word flesh there is the very word that we would use to describe our physical bodies. And in 1 John, he says, we have seen, we have touched, we know that Jesus Christ has taken on human flesh. And we need to understand why John emphasizes this so strongly. If Jesus was not truly man, if he did not take on human flesh, then there was no redemption, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so if we adopt a Gnostic Jesus, we no longer have a Jesus who can provide a sacrifice for sin. And so this is why they emphasize this point. And so the Gnostics who attempted to work through this problem of Jesus' physical body historically are called docetics, Docetics, it's from the Greek term dachain, which means it seems, it seems. And what they said was Jesus seemed to have a physical body, but he didn't really have a physical body. The docetics said Jesus' body was a phantom. It was an illusion. It wasn't really there. So, for example, they would tell the story of Jesus and one of the disciples walking along the seashore. And Jesus is talking about the Gnostic knowledge and all these things. And then when the disciple turns around and looks behind him, guess what he sees? He sees only one set of footprints in the sand. Why does he see only one set of footprints? Because Jesus doesn't leave footprints in the sand because he only seems to have a physical body. And so the Gnostics adopting this docetic idea when they come to the story of the crucifixion in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what they do is they have to come up with some way to explain how a, a non-physical being can be nailed to a cross. And so some of those early Gnostics came up with the idea that someone else was nailed to the cross rather than Jesus himself. But they are doing this not because there was any Anything in the first century at all that even suggested this. They came up with this idea because of their anti-Christian theology that denied that Jesus had a physical body. And so when you read about people, and you might read in, in various sources, uh, theories of, of Simon of, uh, of Cyrene taking Jesus' place, uh, or Judas being made to look like Jesus taking his place, when you go back to the earliest references to these, what do you find consistently? 
you find consistently that it was the Gnostics, a form of Gnosticism that came up with this. And so you need to realize that the original people who presented these ideas were not monotheists. They are not people who believe there is only one true God, the creator of all things. These were people who were polytheists who did not believe that the one true God could even create material matter. And so the, the, there is a religious reason why these people came up with these stories, not a historical reason. There was nothing in the first century in the teaching of the apostles that would have given them reason to believe this. This is where it came from, this concept of Gnosticism. And so we see that the New Testament addresses these very early Gnostic ideas that came into the church. I quoted for you earlier about Jesus being the creator of all things. This is found in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and following. And listen now with your knowledge of Gnosticism to what Paul said. He insists that Jesus Christ created all things. Well, wait a minute. The Gnostics believe that the creator of all things is an evil demiurge, a, a lesser God. In fact, in the second century, some of these Gnostic groups trying to deal with the Christian Bible, including the Old Testament, actually came to the point where they identified the God of the Old Testament as this demiurge, as an evil God. And some of their writers even went into the New Testament and started cutting everything out of the New Testament that said anything positive about Jews or said anything positive about the Old Testament. Just cut out all the citations of the Old Testament because they had come to the conclusion that very clearly the God of the Old Testament is the creator of all things. And since the creator of all things is an evil God, they took all those things out and came up with their own version of the Bible. As a result, a much shorter version, obviously. We know that in the Old Testament, the name of God is Yahweh or Jehovah. And they identified that God as an evil God. And then they said Jesus came from a different God, that the father of Jesus was not the, the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh. Instead, he was this true spiritual God and Jesus descended from him. You can hear then how strong Paul's arguments are in Colossians. When he emphasizes Jesus Christ created all things, he exhausts the Greek language. He uses every preposition you could almost come up with to try to emphasize the fact that everything that exists does so at his will and for his purposes. That's why I emphasize that for the Christian, you need to, you need to realize that as you sit there this day, from the Christian understanding, your very existence is given to you by Jesus Christ. That's why we cannot be neutral about Jesus Christ. We cannot simply say, well, you know, someday I'll think about what he has to say, what his claims were. If he is the one who is sustaining you at this very point, can you be neutral about him? Can you be neutral about his claims on your life, your relationship to him? You most certainly cannot. That is the power of the Christian message as we are talking about not just a carpenter from Nazareth. He was that. But when you see all the New Testament teaches, he is the very creator himself. That's why we cannot be neutral about him. And then listen to these other words from Paul. In Colossians 2.9, this is one of my favorite texts. He warns us about those who would, who would take us captive. 
Colossians 2.8, says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. What is the standard? Colossians 2.9, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells, somatikos, in bodily form. Now, think about that now with the background of Gnosticism. Can you hear what Paul is now emphasizing? All the pleroma, the fullness of deity, and that word deity means that which makes God, God, dwells in Jesus, is dwelling, present tense, this is after the resurrection, is dwelling in Jesus in bodily form, somatikos, the body. No Gnostic could ever accept that kind of a statement. Paul does not allow for there to be any compromise at this point because if we're willing to compromise on who Jesus is, we no longer have any kind of message for the world. The world does not need more messages about religious leaders. It needs to know that God himself has entered into his own creation because if that's what God has done in Christ Jesus, then mankind is in no position to say, well, I don't know that I'm going to accept what God has done. I'd like him to do something differently to save me. No, if God has entered into his own creation, that is why we proclaim the lordship of Christ to all people. That's the gospel of Christ. So we see the concern that Paul has. We also then can see the concern that the apostle John has about this early Gnosticism because he keeps emphasizing we saw Jesus. Jesus ate the, the, the bread and the fish after the resurrection. He showed us his hands. And his side. He truly experienced the, 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 the wounds of the, of the nails. John, interestingly enough, the only one to mention the nails. The other gospel writers do not. John mentions the prints of the nails in his hands and the spear wound in his side. What's he emphasizing? Jesus wasn't a phantom. He didn't just seem to have a physical body. He truly entered into flesh. He became the God-man, truly God, yet truly man. He does not cease to be God. There is no mixture to the point where you're 50% God and 50% man. No, the biblical message is that he who eternally existed, the creator of all things, took on that human nature. He did not cease to be God in so doing. And if we confess that God is powerful enough to create all of the universe, upon what basis do we limit God's power to say that he could not do that? That's what I would like to know of anyone who would say otherwise. So here we have the outlines of Gnosticism. And it is the Gnostic religion that then in the second century realizes if we are going to establish our religious legitimacy, and we are going to do so in the light of Christianity, and we are going to produce our own version of Christianity, then we must produce scriptures. We must produce something other than the gospel of John, which so strongly refutes us. We need to, we need to attack the apostle Paul because he strongly refutes us. We need to come up with our own scriptures. And it is those scriptures today that are the primary source of attacks upon the Christian faith by individuals writing books and seeking to in some way convince us that we should not believe in historic Christianity. It is those Gnostics in the second and third centuries 
who were more than willing to write books in the name of people who appeared in the New Testament. The most famous of the books that they wrote, at least famous today, is called the Gospel of Thomas. The Gospel of Thomas has nothing to do with Thomas. Many of these books, all of these books, in fact, the name they bear is taken directly out of the New Testament. All these books show that the New Testament already existed. It had pre-existed these books by many decades. It had already been copied and transmitted. And so what they're doing is the, the Bible already exists. They don't believe what the Bible says, and so now they're going to come up with their own version. They're going to use the Bible as far as they want to do so. They're going to use the names of people in the Bible, but then they're going to, in essence, create fiction. They're going to create fictional accounts. They're going to, going to say, well, one day Jesus said these things, or one day Jesus and Thomas were walking along and they said uh, these things to Peter. They're going to create historical fiction. But this fiction does not go back to the first century. It has no place in first century Jerusalem. There were no Gnostic sages walking around the streets of Jerusalem in the first century. Jesus was not a Gnostic, even though many in uh, scholasticism in the academy today would like, to, would like to make Jesus into that because then he'd look a little bit more like them. That's not what was going on in Jerusalem. There is no way to take these Gnostic gospels and transport them back into Jerusalem and make them believable. But the biblical gospels, whenever we can test them, against the contemporary writings of the day, the archaeological discoveries made in Jerusalem, what do we discover? Just recently, all around the world, the announcement was made that in archaeological digs in Jerusalem, they had found, yet again, another specific thing that was mentioned in the New Testament, specifically in this case, in the Gospel of John, uh, they found the Pool of Bethesda, and it was exactly as described in the text of the Bible. You're not going to find that with the Gnostic Gospels, because they don't come from the first century. They weren't written by apostles. Thomas had nothing to do with the writing of the Gospel of Thomas. And there was no one in Jerusalem at that time who was a Jewish person who believed the things that you'd have to believe to be a Gnostic and to write the things you find in the Gospel of Thomas or in these other works. And so they're not historical. They're historical in the sense they come from the second century, but they're not historical in that they're actually recording real events that took place in history itself. We need to keep this in mind. Now, I want to read to you uh, in our next study some elements of the Gospel of Thomas so you have some idea of how very different the worldview, the view of God, the, world of man, the view of mankind, the view of salvation, the view of everything found in these Gnostic Gospels is so far removed from anything that any monotheist would ever believe, let alone a Christian monotheist. That, for me, I think one of the best ways to defeat those who are promoting the Gnostic Gospels is maybe to distribute them a little bit more widely. People only hear about them and go, oh, that sounds interesting. When you actually read it, you're left with a very different impression than what you hear when you listen to the people who are promoting these books. And so we're going to look into exactly what these books are talking about. And then we're going to look at some other books, some other books that don't even have any basis in history at all that people actually believe are relevant 
to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ as we continue to look at the substance of the New Testament, the Bible, and its reliability. Thank you.